friends. Welcome to Having a Blast. My name is Kyle. I'm your host. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. And today I'm excited because I've got one of my good friends, one of my close friends that I've had for a few years now, although we met maybe a little over a decade ago. Our old bands played a couple of shows together in the Lawrence area. Lawrence is about 45 minutes from Kansas City. I grew up in Kansas City. I live in Lawrence, Kansas now. Just for anybody who isn't in the area. Todd is a very talented person. He's a great songwriter. I love his band. He's in a band called The Dear Misses. I filled in for them at a show last year. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed learning their songs and really just enveloping myself in their music. Todd and I also have a working relationship. I am an online trainer slash coach and I do an online nutrition company and I've been working with Todd and we've been just smashing goals for the last year. He really is my star pupil. He's done a fantastic job and super proud of him. I really wanted to get him on the podcast because I just really enjoy talking music with him. We have a lot in common with music and we grew up listening to similar bands and similar albums and our philosophies are very similar. He does a great job of encapsulating what a lot of these pivotal records mean to him and I share his sentiments when he talks about Metallica I get excited because I grew up on Metallica when I first started playing guitar I was all about playing Metallica riffs and we talk a little bit about that in this episode we also kind of go down the rabbit hole of what a band like Green Day has meant for the both of us and how influential that band has been and Dookie in particular Todd and I also share a deep love of the band Thrice and originally when I reached out to him I wanted to talk to him and do a deep dive on the album The Artist and the Ambulance and I actually was able to do that with him as well but this first half of the episode this first episode that I'm releasing it's going to be a two-part episode we just had a blast talking about being in bands playing in local bands and just what it means to be in a band and what it means to be a songwriter and be creative so I figured I would make this its own standalone episode and I hope you enjoy it all right so without further ado please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Mr. Todd Anderson of The Dear Misses. Alright, we're good to go. Sweet. Do you remember a band called Paddington? Mm-hmm. I was going to try to be their drummer. Oh, cool. And apparently they broke up right when I was going to do that or something. Okay. I, that was just like my, at school, I keep thinking of these band names. You were like right there. And I'm surprised yeah. that I didn't meet you well, before I met you. We probably just missed our paths crossing. Did you move here in 2004? At the tail, yeah. Tail of 2004? Yeah. Okay, so game time broke up right then. At the end of 2004. I think I was it. It might have actually been 05, to be honest. So I missed you by a year probably. But I did Hutch Community College from 02 to 03 and 03 and 04. And then at the end of 04, I moved to Lawrence to start school for 04, 05. So I guess, yeah, that might have been right around that time. But Yeah, because after game time, I spent about a little over a year with the guitar player from game time. And we were trying to start a new band called Stark Raving. But we had it in our mind that we didn't want to play shows. I mean, we made a lot of mistakes. And I look back now, that was dumb. (laughs) Yeah, you were making lots of mistakes, Kyle. But I was so young, you know, (laughs) you don't know what you don't know. And we had it in our minds that we didn't want to play shows. We just wanted to record a solid demo that sounded professional and sounded good that 
showed the promise and whatever the songs were that we were writing at the time. It was also difficult to find members to complete the band. So we were sort of struggling with that. And we were telling ourselves that we didn't need to play any shows because we were convinced game time was spreading ourselves too thin because we were playing so often and in so many markets of KC that we felt like we had burned our audience a little bit. So mm-hmm. we were trying to write and record songs commission the right type of band members to complete the project. Then we were going to shop our demo. We even flew. It's funny because I don't think about this very often, but we literally flew to California to shop our first demo to labels before we really started playing shows. I think by that point, we had only played maybe one or two shows as kind of a test run. But I remember we went to the militia group. We went to Takeover. We went to Epitaph. And of course, nothing happened. Our demo didn't sound very good. It wasn't very polished and it was sort of the very beginning of bare bones being able to have a Pro Tools set up in your house or some mm-hmm. type of DAW recording interface. Right. And that kind of fizzled out. We commissioned a drummer and we basically trained him to be able to go out on the road. He was 17 years old, so he was a little bit green as far as playing shows, being able to play consistently and just getting him ready to essentially tour and do the thing. And then we went in to record an eight or nine song album. We got all the way to vocals and they quit and they started their own thing. And that became Echo the Sky. I don't know if you ever remember that. I remember that name. Yeah. Yeah. So Caleb, the singer of Echo the Sky, he was the guitar player in Game Time for the last year of Game Time's existence. So Stark Raving was me and Caleb essentially for a year. And we trained this drummer named Jesse who lived all the way out in Platte City. I'm not exactly sure what happened because a lot of it happened behind the scenes, but they were getting more or less antsy that we weren't finishing our album as quickly as they had wanted to. But we were getting this amazing deal in the studio at Low Key Productions in Blue Springs. And we had to wait, I think, two months to go back in and finish to do the vocals. And they really didn't like the fact that we had to wait that long and they thought it was i guess unfair i'm not exactly sure because they were having conversations without me essentially it was a friend of mine the guy that was recording us he was the guy that recorded all the game time stuff so he was essentially giving us the studio time for 90 percent off or something i think we paid just shy of three thousand dollars for eight or nine songs at the time so they started writing for echo the sky immediately after that when we went our separate ways and then i didn't play music for two years So that's one of the reasons I think we probably didn't cross in the local scene because the time that we did cross paths, that was in the American life. And that was 2008, 2007, something like that. Yep. So there was a big gap where I wasn't doing anything. And then it seemed like I was doing lots of things all of a sudden. So you've been in local bands for a long time. And we already start. Have we already started? Have I just been sort of like, Oh, so what we'll do is I may chop in some stuff that we just talked about. I may chop that in. Okay. Just because I think it's kind of fun to listen to. And I think a lot of people that listen to this are from Kansas City and the surrounding areas. So they'll get a sense of how you and I know each other. And that's always fun too. I'll ask you a question right now and then we can officially begin. Okay. So you've been in local bands and stuff. You were in Left on Northwood. And then that became the Dear Misses, right? No, not really. We were... we. Left on Northwood was sort of, we wanted to pivot into something that was more hardcore, something that was, that was very, it wasn't as vocally driven. It, there would be a lot of yelling. There'd be a lot of breakdowns, a lot of riffs, just something that was sort of like, we were trying to pivot really hard and, and nobody ever really saw that. 
So when we met, I think it was it like a, there was like a, it, I, I hate calling it a battle of the bands, but they had so many showcase things at the Granada, the bottleneck, and there was all sorts of these yearly things that happened in Lawrence. And so we tried to be a, a part of those things as much as possible. Not the farmer's ball, but there was another one. I have the internet up about. here and I should, but anyway, so we met at this Granada thing, this Granada feature. And I remember we had to be there all day long. And I was sort of grumpy because I had to take a day off work to play for three minutes, but I had to be there. And I don't know if it was like a draw straws kind of a thing, but that's where we met at the Granada. In that time, we were trying to, we were playing music off of our first album, which was Gut Check Personality. We recorded in Lawrence at, I think it was called Daybreak Studios. We had won mm-hmm. some studio time and we started it there and then ended up finishing with Joe and Dan Kirk, who were from Censura at the time. And they're since mm-hmm. have moved, reconvened to Southern California to do audio engineering. And we sort of just pieced that together very, barely because we were broke. None of us were good with money. I was good with money. They weren't. And they can listen to this. And I hope that they laugh. But none of them were good <laughs> with money. I, I was actually, Cody was pretty good. And I'll tip my cap to him, but we, we all were, we were just living the Lawrence life, man. We, we loved going out to the bar and getting to know people, but I mean, you end up spending 20, 30, 40 bucks at the bar every, you know, three or four nights a week. And then you're like, oh, that's where the album money went. Whoops. So we scraped this together and we were playing that record. And that was before we knew which way was up with what to do with getting your act together. And we tried to get our act together. And we sort of, I remember talking to Jory from, what was his name? George Valor from, man, what, you know Jory at all? You you would know his band. Anyways, we ended up just seeking counsel, sort of needing to find out what you do as a band. And so they were like, get something professional. So you're going to have to budget and then you're going to have to save for tour. And you guys have this stuff. So we ended up recording and this is, we had just got a DAW for the house that was sort of, it was really basic, but Cody was sort of a rocket scientist with, he could just plug in and make something work. So we ended up starting to record on our own and Michael Dye from Godzillionaire, he was our guitarist and he more or less started to get good at that stuff too so we were able to demo and we had some stuff that was like it was really hardcore there was a lot of riff a lot of breakdown and then there was stuff a lot of that was coming from Cody and then on my end was sort of this like on the other side of the fence we which we tried to be i was trying to make radio songs a lot of chords a lot of melody and Leroy, our singer, I don't think he ever got this. I don't think this that the type of music that we were sort of giving him was turning him on at all. Okay. Respectfully. And so we parted ways and he had a really cool electronic project and that was where it needed to stop. So. Yeah, I understand that for sure. You guys were just developing new tastes and maturing and evolving in your musical sensibilities and things. That makes sense. I think that happens with so many bands and so many artists different people have different experiences and there's new music always coming out and things that are inspiring us and directions that we might be pivoting towards you said it heavy so when i think heavy i just immediately think of every time i die and under oath that sort of thing were you guys writing stuff like that it was sort of like the bled or sort of the bled sort of kicked down the door and they had this really unique just like a lot of bands were doing had really great pieces from things that we used to listen to in the 90s growing Mm -hmm. up and just kind of 
putting it together. And sometimes it's dishwater and sometimes it's a cocktail, you know, and the bled really spoke to us. Every time I die really spoke to us. August Burns Red really spoke to us. Under Oath. Yeah. There was a and lot of great. like Thrice, right? Yes, absolutely. I would say Thrice. I very much loved Thrice. That was sort of the band that made everything start for me going into the mid 2000s, moving up to Lawrence was Thrice. So I was pushing Left on Northwood to, I wanted to go that direction. I thought what they had was perfect. And you grow and you learn and you realize who you are as a songwriter and you realize who you are as a band member and as a person, as an artist. There's a lot of these things that people don't really take into account when you're trying to make a project work, really looking at everybody's, what do you want out of this? And I think that we all wanted separate things. We all wanted very different things out of Left on Northwood. And I think that a lot of young bands should really, like when you get together, always, of course, first and foremost, have fun. But once the business starts to happen and it's like, okay, let's take this and do something, find out what you want from it and find out what where your comfort zone starts and where it ends. Yeah. And I really wanted the thrice sort of sound. I know that Cody really wanted a more hardcore sound, something with breakdown, something that you could like, that you could synchronize headbang to get the crowd in a tizzy. I wanted more sing-alongs, more this or that. And I think it was definitely thrice was a gigantic influence. So for all of us, for sure. Yeah. They may have been the band unifier because you've got the heavy elements, but you've also got the really melodic elements too. Yeah. I think when you're talking about being in a band, you're talking about getting on the same page. And that was always kind of a looming, scary conversation for me with my bands because I always felt I don't know if you ever felt this way, but I was always nervous to have those conversations where we get on the same page because I felt like that would be where we all discover we're not on the exact same page and it might cause a rift. Yeah. So it was almost better to not talk about it, which I recognize now that that's kind of an immature viewpoint, but that's how I felt back then, especially in game time. I felt like in game time, we were just completely on different planes in certain respects, but we were at least in the same air zone heading in the same direction. Right. So that was what at did least you, comforting. What was your, what was your lane in the band as far as in game time? Yeah. What was your, what it when not what you were bringing to the table musically per se, but what you brought to the table, what, what did you want to happen and how did that differentiate from everybody else? That's a great question. I think the thing that I brought to it was similar to what you were saying earlier. I brought ambition and drive and tenacity. When I first met Kyle Coomer, he said something that really resonated with me that my young brain wasn't even thinking of at the time. But the second he said it, my mind immediately latched onto it. And that was, I want to be touring six months out of the year. That was kind of our unifying goal. We wanted to write fun, catchy songs that were essentially homegrown and early blink meets backstreet boys we joked about that a lot because we had three-part harmonies and stuff that's where our, our <laughs> musical leanings headed towards in the broadest sense which was a good thing because if we got really really specific then there might be some some dissonance and some arguments there but yeah. that was our goal we just wanted to tour we wanted to tour six months out of the year because that was what we saw all these other bands doing these successful bands and generally if you were touring for six months out of the year that meant you were regularly putting out music that meant you had tour support from a label because the only way you could tour for six months successfully is if you had some type of support somebody was sending flyers to the venues so that when you showed up people actually came yeah and it meant that you had a 
solid booking agent that was getting you on decent tours and decent tour packages. And we wanted to play Warp Tour. That was a big goal of ours. So that was a direct focus. That was Tractor Beam. Every sure. single person had that unifying goal. We had to very quickly come up with new goals because we were touring for quite a bit for an unsigned band. I booked a lot of the tours that we did because I was already booking shows in Lawrence and Kansas City. I used this site called Book Your Own Fucking Life that started out as a zine. <laughs> And then it became a website. It was this really cool, unique way of interconnecting all these small markets and different places in the U.S. And smaller local bands would throw their name in the hat if you needed somebody yeah. to contact for a small venue on a Tuesday night or something. Yeah, we had many drunk in the conversation about like starting a business that was that like start a website. We'll call it whatever we're going to call it. And it could be this big thing. But I mean, we're just trying to reinvent MySpace and reinvent like... <laughs> pure volume and stuff but yeah like with, with mike die he was our i mean we cut our teeth together in hutchinson and we were in a band a high school band together that was that was terrible but we had a lot of fun we moved up to lawrence about the same time sort of on different paths and then we when we met up again and he was always like he brought that he brought what you were bringing he brought this wonderful like okay and god bless him and i feel so bad because he's i mean the guy's such a wonderful beacon of light and i think that we just drove him insane because i didn't know what i wanted and i had always looked at bands that i loved right and starting with metallica i saw what they were doing and there was something in there that was magical and so you take that magic from a 3000 foot view and there's just this wonderful picture but what metallica had to do was be away from home nine months out of the year. Mm. They had no personal life. They had a lot of alcohol and drug problems because of stress and anxiety, I'm assuming. They were just, I'm sure that they were in this pressure cooker until they were on stage, which is what I, the things that I saw. So mm. watching all those things and watching like the magic, hearing that music and that came at a price to them. Just putting myself in that position, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm going to put myself in this machine. And I realized how much I hated it. So what I wanted out of music was to express myself. I think my body, my spirit, my soul, my mind, my heart, whatever you want to call it, the magic in that really, like when I would play it and listen to it, it helped me focus. It helped me dial in the important things. It helped me be less confused. But when it came to the business, like, okay, okay, now we're going to, you're going to take this magic or you're going to take this thing and you're going to put it into, you're going to make it a career, right? That's where I didn't realize that I hated it and that you could do, you could still make music and you could still, you could still write and you could still record. But I just wish that it was so scary to leave those guys. I didn't even know that I wanted to, or that I needed to, maybe it's not that I wanted to, but I know that those guys wanted to go, whether they will admit that or not, they wanted to be the, the band that was on the road. And I think I was the dude that was sort of like, no, I can't do that. I, I, there's just something about being gone for six, seven months. That's not how I'm built. I'm just a yeah. home person. I'm a homebody. And I think that I wanted to just start with um, the puzzle of putting together, like essentially the artist in the ambulance, putting that together. I wanted mm -hmm. that for me. And I wasn't necessarily concerned if it made had commercial success. So yeah, 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 you just were more interested in creating the art for the expression aspect of it. And because you really dug music and you saw that, like you said, the magic in it. And there is something magical about having nothing. And then all of a sudden you create something. 
Yeah. That seems to be a general theme that I have gotten from a lot of the people that I've talked to. They just really love that going from nothing to something. But there's still a, but tell me if you agree though. I very well, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn, but I also think that we were putting the cart before the horse. I think that we did have something and I'll go back to sometimes you have dishwater and sometimes you have a cocktail. And when I say dishwater, you've got just dirty dishes soaking in water and then that doesn't taste very good. It doesn't just because you're mixing different elements of the styles and stuff doesn't mean that it's going to work. So we had, that's where we were. We had musicians that we clicked as friends and then we took stuff and we could play music together and we didn't play a lot of covers. And that was, again, that was me. I was just sort of like, let's play this stuff. Left on Northwood sort of started as like, Left on Northwood started because I was tired of seeking out other bands to play with. Mm -hmm. And I just got tired of the rejection. I tried out for a few bands in Lawrence, didn't work. And I was going to school for music and everybody was finding their happiness, right? Through whatever it was, sitting in a practice room, playing the wind ensemble, or they're playing in groups outside of school. And so I was like, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to, I'm going to start my own thing. So I yeah. did. And I took it to people and I just wanted to play the music that I was writing. And then, but to get back to that, I was bringing in an element, but those, again, that was where the same page kind of thing is like, I know that those guys wanted to play other things that they liked too. And it's not fair to have one dude control or two dudes control five person unit and sort of steer the, there's a difference between leading and they're in control. And yeah. we, we weren't leading. I wasn't leading. I was trying to control it. So we had a sound that just wasn't clicking. There was something in it that we could have, that we needed a producer for. We needed somebody to really just take it and just say like, okay, take this part out. You don't need, you don't need to have a breakdown in every song and take this thing out. You don't need to, you know, have some sort of a clever intro to every song. This is what works. We weren't able to get there, but I mean, you live, you learn. I'm always curious about other people's experiences with that. You know, with, yeah. with being in a band and the role that you would bring. Because I always felt like if we would have just been honest with each other, and, and this is with multiple groups, and just been honest and said like at the beginning, and it's hard to say, but being able to just have open communication and be able to just say, this is what I want. This is what you want. Does that work? Yeah, and then, just like any relationship, right? Yep. I just wish that, it, I guess if anybody's listening that is starting a group or a project and has some sort of a goal and you're with people, I mean, talk about that stuff and make sure that you're all on the same page. Have fun, of course, but if you're going to take what you do and when it's fun and you're going to take that and make that fun a business, take a second to talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Just getting on the same page. My favorite band of all time is Green Day. And sure, I've heard Trey and Mike both talk about how their role in the band is to support their captain of their ship. Green Day's the ship and Billy Joe is the captain. And it doesn't always need to be that way. It doesn't always need to be that way. And there's a lot of successful bands where it's not that way. You might have two people or three people that predominantly write most of the songs. If you think of a band like Under Oath, which maybe this caused problems in the past, you never know, but they... Typically, they have Tim writing all of the songs with Aaron and Spencer. Spencer writes all the lyrics. I think Aaron helps with that. Those are the core members who write 
the majority of the music. And then you've got the other members that support them and just continue helping them move on as a unit. But I think there's something to be said with Green Day specifically, because they've had the same three members now for over 30 years. And they're one of the most successful bands ever. I think it's because they probably very early on understood that they needed to get on the same page and they needed to, they needed to trust Billy to be the captain of the ship and Mike and Trey were going to lend because they're obviously amazing musicians in their own right. Mike Dern's one of the best bass players in punk rock. Trey Cool is one of the best drummers in punk rock and just modern American music too. So I think that's one thing with a cohesive unit where you've got a, a lot of different personalities. Right. Not only do you have to get on the same page, but you do have to kind of discover what everybody's role is. And then the hope is that you can develop those systems and then level up with those right. systems. Because if you have disjointed ideas of what the band is and what everybody's role in it is, it's very difficult to get in that cohesion and then level up and right. just well, carry on as a band. Well, and Billy Joe is a leader too. I mean, he played to their strengths. Like he knows Mike and Trey can nail. He's setting them up for success. It's this reciprocal thing. You can tell that he wouldn't, I don't think he would ever write anything that wasn't in their wheelhouse or he didn't believe that they could manage or he would just do it somewhere else. And he has, you know, as they've gotten older, he did the Everly Brothers duet with Nora Jones, that record a few years ago. And Uh he's at a point now, they're old enough now to where they can do separate projects. And Trey has done separate projects and Mike's done other bands and things like that. That's the thing. I think when you're young, it's difficult to think beyond yourself and your ego because you're thinking, no, this is my project. This is what's going to make me. So everybody needs to just get on board with that idea. But you could actually fulfill your role in a band and then get to a place where you've leveled up to where it gives you all the options in the world to do whatever you want in your downtime. You know, I think mm-hmm. of a band like Foo Fighters, where you've got Chris Shiflett doing his all country thing now. He wouldn't have been able to do that in any other band, probably, if they were right. slogging it out for 10 months out of the year on tour and they weren't as successful as a band like Foo Fighters. But he joined a band that was already a machine. And so he brought a very specific role. I'm going to be the guitar player. And if it expands beyond that, then great. You know, everything is going to evolve over time. But that just gave him more options. Derek Sitters, he's got this great quote where he says, when you're trying to decide between options, pick the option that gives you the most options. And I always I think like about that. that band terms, you know, if somebody has the opportunity to latch on to a machine that's already huge and established, just fulfill your role. And then you have the opportunity beyond that to do all the other side projects and all the other things that you want to do. And you never know, you may become more known for that in a sense, yeah. like Alice from City and Color. He was doing that, I'm sure, just a side project with Alexis on Fire. And now it's his main game gig you know and it'll probably serve him until he's 60 years old or something yeah when was the first time you heard green day oh dude first time i heard green day i was sitting in my parents living room in the same house they own now and i was looking up at the tv and we were watching i think 120 minutes and i was 10 years old and they were playing music videos and i remember they played basket case by green day so longview was not the first song that i heard i know they released that as a single but i didn't see that video until after basket case and i think basket was case longview is really their first single it was yeah they released it the same day they released dookie i believe i could be wrong about that but they released I it did, in february i did not know that that's cool yeah, isn't I, did, that crazy? I, I, I thought basket case was the first for some yeah, reason i did too for the longest time and i thought longview came after after, but they had already shot Longview because they shot it at Billy Joe's house. So when he's ripping up the carpet at the end and all the feathers are, are flying everywhere, that's his house. So I saw a basket case of the video and I was immediately drawn to the palm muted guitars in that intro, that really anthemic chorus, but a verse melody. Yeah. 
and I was just immediately hooked. I was 10 years old. And yeah, I think that was the first music that I just instantly connected with. There was a couple right. of things that I connected to in the eighties. I remember I listened to rock set. I liked rock set and I liked the beach boys and Beatles <laughs> and all that stuff, Van Halen, but green day was the first thing where I think it just immediately lit up whatever musical yeah. sensibilities I had at that point. Rock set, dude, that's a hell of a pull. Um, I rock set is a swimming pool band for me. Yeah. If I hear any rock set, I'm like taken back to being at the pool between <laughs> noon and five, just swimming, swimming and swimming and, and getting picked up. And you, they're still playing the music over the speakers. You hear rock set. That's where I go back to. Awesome. I remember, I, do you have any siblings? I do. I have a younger sister. Well, I have an older sister and thank God for her. She's an amazing person and always treated me really nicely. We never had the older sister, younger brother, or whether that would be reversed. We never had like a torture each other kind of a thing. She was always looking out for me and she was always really sweet and let me look the other way when I'm going to her albums. And I remember it's funny because there's sometimes where you hear music and I don't know if you're ready to hear it, especially when you're an impressionable time of your life. But I remember getting to raid her CDs and as long as I put them back, I remember seeing Green Day on MTV and I thought that it was, it intrigued me enough to where I don't know that I got a good enough listen to it until I got, you know, the cans on. And mm -hmm. I remember listening to, she had Dookie and I put that in and that's when it was like, I remember I would write Green Day all over my erasers and notebooks, very cliche, yeah. like, yeah, like yeah. in a movie or something. And I remember being that kid at school and that's, I feel like that was the first, and there was a lot of 90s music that I really got into in that same yeah. time. And Green Day was probably the the biggest out of the bunch, like out of Weezer, out of Stone Temple Pilots, out of even Nirvana. I liked Nirvana, but it was, I remember liking the drums a lot. I remember being just into the drummers that were, that you could feel. And a lot of, I don't think we're, unfortunately, or actually maybe fortunately, I think with the revival of vinyl and in that category of the revival of recording in a room, making it real, I think once people start to get a taste or a flavor of like, oh, we've done the samples thing. And the samples stuff is great. And it's sort of a godsend for demoing. And it's mm -hmm. it's wonderful technology, but it, it is an absolute, um, you can tell the difference between the two. But yeah, I just remember with albums like Dookie and stuff that the reason I think it stuck is you could feel the, the magic, the chemistry that they had. And you could, it was yeah. just what they were playing was being recorded in a microphone. And whether there was some specific EQing, you still felt the room, you still felt all that stuff. And I remember that that was like fifth grade for me. So I was 10 as well. I think I was 10 as well. I, yeah, 11. I think it was 11 then, okay. but it was sort of the same thing. Like the, were you a lyrics person or like a music melody. person as far? No, not melody, but like tone, I guess. Yeah. I, I like, well, like to further explain what I'm asking is like with the bands that had the most magic with me, like the melody obviously is soaring over all this stuff, but the tone mm -hmm. of, you know, a half stack, like a Marshall stack, or whether it's Mesa or, or whatever it is, like the tone of a guitar and you just dial in the right, that crispy, distorted, that was how I felt. That was sort of like a warm blanket to me. I didn't really like, oh, he said this vocal and I and I identify with this feeling he has. I identified with like the, the just the, like you said, palm muting, like that's really aggressive. And that's, I could feel something from that. It was sort of like, yeah. okay, I can channel this 
wherever you sort of hit a roadblock in life or, or you don't even know maybe there's a problem or you don't even know that maybe you're having trouble dealing with something or something's bothering you. Sometimes when you get those outward sorts of experiences, it soothes a pain that you're used to, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was sort of what I was referring to. But are you like a tone person? Do you have the same feeling? I think in many ways I connected to the same thing as you're speaking to. Even now in modern music, sometimes I'm missing that element of, as you said, that warm bath of chords in the background. Because guitars are kind of buried right now. I think when oftentimes when I hear guitars in modern music now, it's usually very afterthought-ish and there's chorusy effect to most guitars that I hear now, similar to how it was in the 80s. But I miss that underlying layer of distorted guitars. And I think the distorted guitars definitely spoke to me. That round encompassing layer of this wall of guitars. And it just lifts and elevates the choruses every time I hear it. And Green Day did that better than anybody else. And they were arguably the first people to do it. They weren't the first people to do it, but I think they were the first people to do it on such a massive scale. Because there was bands like Bad Religion and NoFX, and they were doing similar things, but they were on the underground. So they weren't accessible, especially not to a 10 year old kid who has no access to anything other than the TV that he's staring up at from his floor. But I think the melodies specifically really spoke with me. And I didn't really become a lyrics person until later in life. I didn't even really connect to the early emo lyrics that everybody was connecting to the things like Taking Back Sunday and, and brand new and things. Yeah, It was more about the melody for me. I wanted to hear a good melody and I wanted to hear a good recording. And it's funny now because now I listen to music and it's more about how it makes me feel and less about how great the recording is or yeah. how catchy the melody is, how much the chorus lifts from the verses and things, which is, I think, what really drew me towards things like pop punk and for lack of a better term, emo and post-hardcore and even indie rock and that sort of thing. I just wanted a good catchy melody. Isn't it funny how easy it is to forget that stuff? That's where I like my biggest regret. I I don't want to have any regrets for the path that I've taken as far as with the art that I've made, but I just lost sight of that quickly. And I'm starting Mm -hmm. to rediscover the love, how it makes me feel as opposed to trying to make a make it a job or something or make it a, a career yeah. or life and, th- and that's always that's always a great thing when it can happen for people and the stars can align and, and it works for their soul and it works for the the type of person that they are and what they're putting out into the world makes it positive that's great but especially with the pandemic and especially being a new father technically but I've got a three-year-old and just sort of having to just wipe the slate and just be like, okay, I'm, I've made a lot of things really complicated. And, you know, maybe that's the wiring in my brain, or maybe it's just the path that I took, but I'm thankful to be able to be going down a road where I can see, oh, I've put a lot of, a lot on my plate, or I've had a lot of scribble on this whiteboard of life. I can just erase a lot of this stuff that maybe a mistake or a misstep or, or making a decision that didn't work out or pan out. It's okay to just go back to the beginning and yeah. start to like, okay, what do I have here? But go back to your roots. Yeah, as far as like being cre- <laughs> as far as being creative, I mean that's where that's what it is. That's that's sort of what that's what makes me that's sort of compliment that allows me to be the person that I want to be because I can take some of this negative stuff, the negative stuff that's been happening since we were born 
you take mm-hmm. it and you can filter it through something positive. Yeah. Uh, so if you don't understand something or you don't like something or you're really pissed or you're really or you're really happy and, and excited and stuff, you, you can take that and filter it through this wonderful musical thing. Yeah, the mechanism is music, but it's also creativity. Right. So Green Day did that for you? Was that that was the band that was sort of like, oh, you it kind of attached itself to you and then really worked and then the more that yeah. you listen to it, did you realize you're just like, this is everything. This is, this is everything. Yeah. That was the first time I really connected to something that was truly mine. I love that. And I definitely, I do remember connecting with other things though. You mentioned Metallica. I was a big Metallica fan because I started playing guitar roughly a year or a year and a half before I heard Green Day for the first time. So I was playing along with bands like Nirvana Stone Temple Pilots, Alice in Chains, Metallica, for sure, Pantera. I was playing along with those bands, and I really liked those bands. But I think it was more because they were all in my face. I remember my guitar teacher was exposing me to a lot of those bands. And Nirvana was just everywhere, so you'd hear them on the radio all the time. And I loved Nirvana. I still love Nirvana. But I think Green Day was the first time where, even though it was mainstream, to me it felt underground at that time because it was something brand new and it came out of nowhere. And there was such a juxtaposition between Green Day and Nirvana. Nirvana was very, when I think of colors, I think of like dark blues and dark yellows and black. There was bleakness to it. There was a lot of minor chords, but it was still very catchy at the same time. I think that's one of the things that was one of, the saving graces of Nirvana. They were able to tap into something that was very catchy. That was because Kurt Cobain grew up on the Beatles. So he knew the power and the possibility of melody and getting something that was so simple, almost painfully simple. And it was immediately hook worthy. So it just latched onto your brain the second you heard it. But it was very bleak and very sorrowful, I guess, for lack of a better term. And then you had the juxtaposition of Green Day where it was very major chord oriented, still just as catchy. And it had that polish with the distorted guitars and the palm muted everything. And there was still dynamics, but everything was starting to get squashed a little bit, like everything was compressed. And I think my ears always gravitated towards things that are a little bit more flat. And that's not everybody, but I think I liked that compression sound of the mid 90s. And then they kind of went overboard with it in the early 2000s and into the mid 2000s. And I think, like you said, we're getting back to a place where there's a little bit more dynamics, which I think is a good thing because it helps you feel something with the music. But the Green Day juxtaposition from Nirvana and Alice in Chains, it was a little less heroin rock and it was a little more fun. I'm glad you called it heroin rock. I, <laughs> I, felt, I thought I was the only one that used that term. Because I, I couldn't do Alice in Chains because it made me, it was a little too much. It was sort of like, watching a horror movie or something when you're a kid and it's just like you can watch it but you're just like i'm not a fan of this but i I can watch it and i can appreciate that you like it i just don't want to watch it because it makes me feel pretty terrible and nirvana was sort of the same way but i liked i really liked the drums and i really liked i don't think i know a lyric of a nirvana song to save my life except the ones that i've i've heard a million times you know, that sort of beat you over the head on the radio or whatever. Mm -hmm. But did you take your music like Green Day and did you show it to everybody? And if you did, what reaction did you get? Because when (laughs) I, so I took Metallica, like I said, like I heard Green Day and I really loved it and I did identify with it. And it was sort of this taking what was in the mainstream and I sort of found my way to Metallica because Metallica had happened before that. Mm -hmm. They had blown up in 91 through 94 with the Black Album. 
So yeah. I took my sister again, she gave me this tape and she said, I'm never going to listen to this. Somebody gave it to me at school, recorded it for me. This is what your cousins listen to. Do you want to have it? I was like, what do, what, do you, what do you mean? She's like, it's Metallica. It's that band that they listen to in the car all the time when we're in Blue Springs. So, and again, that's me listening to it and it's not resonating with me yet because I'm not ready. So I put the tape on, it's the Black Album. It's probably 95, 94, 95 or something. Mm-hmm. And it's right before Load came out, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was that, that was the, that was it. It was just like, oh, I get it. I've got to do this. It was just yeah. like, it spoke to me. It was just like, whatever they're doing, I have to do right now. Yeah. I had to, I had to ask my mom for a drum set. I remember thinking, I know that this is uh nobody likes Lars Ulrich, but I thought he was the, the greatest thing in the entire world. I thought he was cool. Every interview he did, I, I loved the way he spoke. I loved everything. I learned guitar because I was just kind of, I annoyed my neighbors so much with my drum set. We just didn't have a soundproof house. It's mm-hmm. pretty old. You could hear me two or three blocks away. So I had to jam my drumming into really small increments. And then I, so I learned guitar because I had to, I had to do that thing. But when I would take it to my friends, I assumed that they would think the same as I did. Yeah. And they, and they didn't. And I was just like, are you guys stupid? This is the greatest, what are you, <laughs> this is the greatest thing in the entire world. And they're like, I yeah, don't get it because that's just not everybody's thing. But did you have that experience where you were sort of let down? Because it's yeah. not, it's, it's not a coincidence that kids who like music like this are so, sort of labeled the misfits or whatever. It's for a reason. It's because it just, it speaks to a, a select few people. Did you get negative reaction from your music? I do relate to that quite a bit. And it's funny, I actually recalled this story the other day to Pamela. So I remember I was riding in the car and I convinced my parents to let me buy Dookie. And I had it on cassette at first and I went back and I was just obsessed. So I bought their first two records too on cassette. And that's why like a lot of times I think of those records in the same vein, Dookie, 1039, Anchor Plunk, all in the same realm because I was listening to all three so much and I was singing along and I didn't really understand the disparity between recording and everything but i remember i was playing dookie and i think she came on i asked my mom she was driving and i asked her what do you think of this isn't this the greatest thing ever isn't this the greatest song ever and she turns to me and i'll never forget she goes it's okay (laughs) it's just like soul crushing right but i think it didn't really make me super disappointed i was a little disappointed in a microsecond but then i thought oh okay this is the separation between my tastes and somebody else's. So I may really love something that just doesn't connect as much to somebody else. I wasn't thinking, Oh mom, you just don't understand. (laughs) Right. Oh, I didn't really really think that because my mom was a fan of music. I remember my parents, they were always listening to music and they were fans of things like Nirvana. They were fans of Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and Soundgarden and all those alternative bands that were kind of blowing up around that time and they liked some green day songs but i don't think obviously it connected to them the way it connected to my brain and the new synapses in my brain and the neural networks that were being formed at that moment because of my developing brain it didn't connect as well it's kind of like when i listen to billy eilish now and i know this is kind of cliche and making me sound (laughs) quote-unquote old or something but it's like i understand the i understand the appeal in billy eilish but it may not connect with me in my brain. 
that's already fully formed as a grown adult, the way somebody who's 10 or 11 now listening to it for the first time, and it's just rocking their little tiny developing brains world. It may not do the exact same thing. And I'm okay with that, but I can still appreciate it because there's still melody throughout. There's still production techniques and there's still some element of talent and some element of songwriting there that makes sense to me and is still part of me. So I think that's just when I discovered that I am my own individual person and I have tastes that resonate with me. And there's just going to be certain art and music that resonates with me that doesn't necessarily resonate with everybody the exact same way. But that's why it was so comforting to meet people that were so obsessed with bands like MXPX and Early Blink and Green Day and even Metallica and Tool and those bands. It was around the same time that I was discovering a lot of these bands. And a lot of my friends that were younger, they were into those bands too. And that was something that we connected with. And the fact that I was playing guitar, take my guitar to school and you pull it out during music class when I'm supposed to be playing the violin and I'm actually pulling out my guitar and our teacher is giving us 10 minutes to have all the kids basically shout out requests and they're shouting things like Green Day and Oh, you got to do that. That's so band. cool. Yeah, it was they fun. Let you, they let you do that? That's BS. My music teacher, I remember they had the drums set out, the drum kit, and I played baritone. I played the instrument my best friend played in band. I just was like, I'll just play what he plays. And my mom's like, you're a drummer, stupid. What are you doing? <laughs> you, why didn't you sign up for percussion? And I remember bawling in the car. And I remember just like, I thought I had just ruined my entire, because they wouldn't let you switch back. They wouldn't let you like, oh, we're, we're full Uh-oh. up with percussion. He picked this. We've got to commit to it. And it ended up paying for a lot of my college. I played baritone through, but I got to do drum lessons. And, and that was where I, I got that rush. But when you said you put, got the guitar out, I remember Jeremy Frank in Liberty Middle School, he had this really awesome looking guitar. And I'm pretty sure it was, it sort of looked like an Ibanez. It was pretty slick like heavy metal looking but he played it in jazz band and i remember asking to see it and to hold it and he could play Mm -hmm. song tube like blur and Mm -hmm. he could play like music like that and i remember holding it and thinking it was it's sort of like being able to sit in a maybe a race car or something for somebody who likes cars and machines and stuff like it, it just felt so fast and slick and powerful it felt powerful it felt like a weapon it felt yeah. like some it just was this thing and i remember i would have to sneak onto that drum set before mrs pelichek would come in and i would play i remember playing uh 311 i remember playing that that little four, that simple little four beat four four beat and fly yeah. and i remember playing i could play the intro to smells like teen spirit but i couldn't play loudly because she would come in and be like todd and she would point to my seat and we never got to like do the okay let's uh, so-and-so can play drums like what do you want them to play that's so cool Jeez, man and i mean what a skill for a kid to have really i mean if you think about it when kids learn the drums that's kind of a magical thing in and of itself being able to cohesively do three things at one time i mean it's pretty remarkable it literally shapes your brain in different ways and unique ways to every single other person that is walking around that doesn't play the drums even guitar is only two it's not three unless you happen to sing which is a skill in and of itself that it's pretty impressive for a kid or a teenager or even a young adult to have but for her to stifle your creativity and your expression like that right if she ever listens to this because she sees a link on facebook if i share this or something and she just sees this randomly and she wants to listen to it and she hears her name and she's just like that asshole 
I, if I remember correctly, she did let me come in. I think she whispered once, just, she's just like, if you want to play, you have to come in really early (laughs) and no, nobody can be here. And then she saw that I could play. And then she allowed me to try out for jazz band. So I got to play, I got to play drums in jazz band. And so I got to be that multiple instrument person. And I felt pretty, pretty rad. And nobody gave a shit. So that's give and take then. She wasn't totally stifling. She allowed you to come in early and do it. But that's that thing is like, I'm sort of looking at this thing that I've got. I've got this story in my head. The reason I asked you that is because I always used to play it and want to fit in through it. And I hadn't met those kids yet that identified with Metallica or even I knew a few kids that really liked Nirvana, but they weren't in band with me. And we never really hung out. I just knew the kids who wore the skater shirts and the band shirts and represented that way. And I was sort of a a jock. I grew up like loving sports. And then I was now on this fence where I had my friend group that played football, basketball, baseball with me, but I really was good at music. I'm not tooting my own horn. I just, you can hit a baseball, you can throw a ball faster, you can play. I could listen to something and start to play by ear. I could do that. You Um, figure it out. I could figure it out. But, but I was looking sort of when I would play the drums it was sort of a way to, I felt pretty cool. I could do both and that nobody gave a shit. I was just like, man, <laughs> but it but it was one of those things. You just got to grow up and you got to find those people. And it just, you know, but I remember taking Metallica to this girl. I remember the first girl that I, the first girl I was like, whatever love is in your 11 year old brain. I remember taking that Metallica tape over and she's like, ew, Metallica, this is disgusting. And she had this, she was into like what her older sisters were into, like Tupac and Bone Thugs and Harmony. And yeah, so she had an averse, repulsed reaction. Yes. To <laughs> I was mortified. So I kept that, never talked about it again. And I remember feeling sort of like, okay, that was the start of sort of alienation. You feel like she just took this thing. I was really thankful I didn't just go into how amazing it was. And this is so funny because if I haven't talked to this girl in 15, 20 years, probably, and I'm sure she wouldn't remember that at all. Mm-hmm. And that's so funny how that stuff sticks with you. Oh, but yeah. I, I remember the music and stuff becoming a way to connect with people. And it was a language that we could speak instead of me to like, if we were buddies, I wouldn't have to say like, man, I just don't get why so-and-so doesn't think of me the way that I think of them. You could just talk about music and you could identify, you could listen to music with your friends. Right. And the music would just sort of speak for you and you wouldn't have to say all the things that you needed. It just sort of was like, I'm into this and your friends are into it as well. And you're going through the same experiences. It's just, it was just this wonderful unifying thing. That's the word too, right? It's a unifier. Music is, there was a communal aspect to it. I remember going to G coffee when I was 13 and it's the first experience at a local venue and you've got all these local bands that sound like bands you're already listening to. You're thinking, Everybody in this room is eventually going to be a friend of mine. I just need to have a conversation with them. It was one of those things that gave you confidence in knowing you could speak to those people and you at least had one big thing in common. I love that, man. Yeah, that's what's so great about music in general. And yeah, and you still encounter that even as an adult. You can talk. So when you were at this, I remember playing my first gig at at the teen center in Hutch. And I remember I finally allowed myself in high school. I It sounds stupid maybe to some people, but I had to sort of like make a leap into a band. But when you're in a band in high school with peer pressure and stuff, and unfortunately, like whether you want to blame the Midwest or you want to blame people being mean, 
for just because they don't understand how to express themselves. I mean, you would give, you sort of looked at people in bands and who played music, rock music, or really liked that stuff and was in that sort of culture. You looked at them as weird or stupid or, mm-hmm. or off or whatever. So I knew these kids that played music and it's so funny now to be like, if my son was ever in that position, I would just scream, not scream negatively, but I would just tell him how important it is to make relationships with everybody. And just everybody's the same. If you like sports or you like music or you like whatever, you like writing movies and, or you like doing math or you like just being a good friend, whatever, just get to know people. And I wish I would have had that. And, And my parents didn't grow up with being able to express yourself like that either. I think sure. we, we live in a great time to really get to see the treatment of people, of any group, whether it be for race or religion or what you like, your preference. I think it's very exposed now, the people that just don't understand it and are, and the yeah. people who, it's crazy. But I played my first, I, I remember getting with this group and I remember going in there and then feeling stupid that I ever felt that because it's like, oh, this is where I belong. I definitely belong with these kids. And we played, covered, I think we played a show when we covered Turn the Page, the Metallica cover of Bob Seger. And then we yeah. played ba- Basket Case. And then we played an Offspring song. Come out and play. C- come out and play. Of course it was Come Out and Play. <laughs> and, we, and we played Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers. And we played, we just played our favorite songs. And I remember it's awesome. just singing and that was the greatest thing. And we were at this teen center and I remember I need to get to know everybody here. This is yeah, the, yeah. this is sort of that community. But like, Absolutely. where did you, where did you find, because I was from Hutchinson, Kansas, and I don't remember our radio station was very heavily polluted with the same tunnel vision. It's not that there's anything wrong with Led Zeppelin. And sure. okay, so you know the Venn diagram, it's like two circles that, that sort of encompass mm-hmm. like a common entity. So this yeah. radio station played I call I sort of call I call it butt rock now. Yeah. But but it, like Godsmack, Corn, Creed. Creed, and then they play it in the same rotation as Zeppelin, Ozzy. Yeah. All that stuff, and then the really like heroin, grunge, yeah, all of that kind was of like just, yeah, it was it was just that. So I don't. Where did you discover MXPX, and and where did you discover those bands? Because that was not a thing. It was not a mm-hmm. thing. I just listened to. I remember. I just asked you a question, and I didn't even let you answer it. But I just. I remember. <laughs> no worries, man. I remember um, when I heard thrice mm-hmm. that I never listened. I remember that the door shut on, not negatively, but everything sort of, that part of my life was over. Yeah. And I, I, <laughs> everything I, before it. Yeah. And I found it through the warp tour, but mm-hmm. did you, did you have a record store that was just like, Hey, check out this cool punk rock. That's from the East coast or West coast or whatever. Cause we didn't have that. Yeah. It's a good question. And I think I was fortunate because I had a lot of friends that were, for whatever reason, they had older siblings that were more in tap and had a pulse on independent music in general. So they were discovering things like Epitaph and Fat Records, which were the two big punk rock, skate punk, even to a certain extent, pop punk labels at the time, the early to mid nineties. I had a lot of friends that were discovering music from that realm and they were going to things like the Warp Tour back in 97 and 98. The first time I went to Warp Tour was in 1998 and it was here in Lawrence actually. And I think- Hell yeah. One of my friends had a copy of 
Teenage Politics by MXPX, and we were listening to Punk Rock Show. And somebody had a copy of Melancholy Four Monkeys, which came out in 97 on Epitaph. So I was 13 years old. Somebody had a copy of No Effects, Heavy Petting Zoo, and Pumpkin Drublick. It's funny because a lot of the quote unquote jocks that I went to school with, they were actually the ones who introduced me to a lot of this stuff because yeah. in middle school, they were all listening to this stuff. They had older brothers and older sisters that were lending them CDs yeah. and tapes and things. And so I heard mxpx and that was the next step along with no effects and early blink that was the next step in the evolution from green day so i was listening to green day and i really connected with these really poppy catchy melodies and i switched and went looked further in and met friends that were listening to all of these melodic skate punk bands and pop punk bands and then it was just kind of like for you with Thrice, the floodgates just opened. And then I started discovering compilations. So Punkorama volumes were starting to come out. Fat Rec was doing their version of that with the fat music for fat people. That's where I discovered all of those bands and started listening to bands like No Use for a Name, Lagwagon, Strung Out, Propagandi, Bracket, Good Riddance, bands like Pennywise, Bad Religion, H2O, The Bouncing Souls, a lot of those epitaph bands as well. And then I was fully engaged with the MXPX and no effects. And then I discovered bands like homegrown and homegrown really influenced game time. I was a huge fan of dude ranch by blink. So all of these albums we were listening to quite a bit. And it was, yeah. it was kind of like this circular thing where we discovered them at Warp Tour, we bought their records, we listened to their record for an entire year, then we go to Warp Tour again and we discover a whole new batch of bands or we buy a compilation and it would have a whole new slew of bands that they had just signed. And I know I've mentioned it before on this podcast, but Fat Mike always talks about how there was a point in the 90s, the late 90s, where if he signed a band, if he wanted the band to blow up, all he had to do was put their best song on his compilation. And immediately... They'd go on tour and every area and every market, they'd have 600 kids show up. So that's yeah. how powerful things like compilations were at that point. And I think in the 80s, it was zines. Zines were being distributed in punk rock fashion and they were in the 90s too. But zines had catalogs from tiny labels and bands that were coming out and tour itineraries and things like that. So I think that's how people had a pulse on that. It was just people looking beyond the mainstream of music, which is going to yeah. be a thing forever. We had Cody. I keep saying Cody's name. Cody Stapleton. He was in Left on Northwood with me and in the Dear Misses with me. We've sort of been partners in crime and music for a long time, but he listened to MXPX. And so he found it through friends of friends and his brother was really big into 311 and so there was that a lot of those mainstream bands that had sort of sister and brother bands that were branching off into this subculture. So like mm -hmm. even Incubus and some of those some of these bands in that Warped Tour crowd definitely were in, sort of were inspired by a lot of that as well. Deftones. Sure. So yeah, Deftones was a huge one, too. That was the cool band that you could still listen to with the pop punk, but it had that heavy element to it. But I think one MXPX, of those... one of the reasons MXPX blew up was because they were early on marketed as the clean green day. They were marketed in all the Christian bookstores and yep. they that would was play their songs at youth group. That was it. Cody was in. That's where he found it. Cody's dad was a, I think he was like a, did the music for their church. church? He was like their music person. Cool. I don't know the exact, but anyways, yeah, that makes sense. There was that. I didn't really, I, I, I didn't put those two things together. There was a lot of the Christian kids in Hutch High were in the MXPX. Yeah. But I have just vivid memories of, I was getting into 
so for Metallica, I was starting getting to allow other bands in. So mm-hmm. I didn't, I listened to nothing but Metallica. So that's probably my first mistake in the sense that I was in, I was just sort of studying because I was in the mindset that's just like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do what they're in sixth grade. I made the decision. It's like, I'm going to do that. So yeah. I, there was no choice. So I studied. You may have had some tunnel vision, but that's okay. I think, you know, in a lot of ways I was lucky because I had other friends that were just listening to other stuff. I remember yeah. listening to No Use for a Name for the first time. I remember vividly, but it's so s- stupid to even associate this memory with something that I've latched onto. But I remember we were going to buy skate shoes for my one of my best friends at the time. And he popped in Making Friends by No Use for a Name, which is one of their mid-90s records. And I remember where I was sitting in his dad's truck, literally listening to that thing for the first time. I was lucky that I was in the right place at the right time where this kid in front of me just happened to, for whatever reason, purchase this record at CD warehouse or something and then pop it in and then my ear holes discovered it. Yeah. But you had tunnel vision, which is fine. And eventually you branched out into other things. Right. You well, just I needed, found... you needed accessibility to it. Yeah. I found that community of friends eventually, but I remember getting into a band in high school. And so that's where like the Limp Bizkit, Corn, A Perfect Circle, Tool, the, sort of those bands that the White Stripes completely just annihilated and changed alternative radio forever. It was just those bands leading up to the white, you know, where the White Stripes happened. Yeah. Um, but that was sort of all I knew. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, I dated a girl in junior college and Sarah Bartley. And Sarah Bartley took me to my first warp tour with her friends. And I was well, sort of going, that? that was 2003. Ooh, good so year. <laughs> it was, I, well, when we had talked about doing me doing this podcast, I sort of went down the, the right 03. On. Just, I, I was taken back at how impactful that year was. It was, oh, kind of, it was insane the amount of quality stuff that's still in my you know in my rotation yeah right now 